of my favorite songs in the hymnal, because how true that is. Uh, would the kids be dismissed at this time? They can go back to the back and learn on their level there. That'll be a blessing. Love to see a lot of kids and uh, part of our church. That's a blessing. If you will take your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to two places this morning, Genesis chapter 12 and James chapter 1. It'll be a moment before we get there, but if you wanted to put your finger in those, or you can choose one and, and listen to the other if you'd like. But Genesis chapter 12 and James chapter 1. We've been talking about uh, or going through the Sermon on the Mount series, and I'm taking a little break from that today because today I want to tell you a story of an experience I had about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I thought that it might carry some lessons for us. It certainly did for me. My friend Brad, he's here today, uh, and I were on a two-day motorcycle trip. And on this day that I'm referring to, we were leaving Bismarck, North Dakota, heading to Jamestown, North Dakota, to see the world's biggest buffalo. Because that's what you do when you don't have the beautiful mountains of Colorado or the pristine beaches of Florida, you build a big giant buffalo and people will come from miles around to see it. We're boring like that. The distance, uh, total distance to Jamestown was about a hundred miles and we decided that we would stop about halfway through to uh, get some fuel and some coffee. It was a little chilly uh, that morning. About 40 miles in, we get to an exit uh, that one of the first exits that we had seen with a gas station and when we pulled off the exit, uh, we found that every single gas pump was out of commission, could not get fuel there. And so they said across town was another station, but that was uh, one of those really old, kind of uh, catered to farm equipment more than vehicles, and had those old gas pumps. I think they still had leaded options. I'm not sure. They were pretty old pumps, though. Uh, so we were a little bit sketchy, so uh, Brad got a couple gallons. I thought I, would, I had plenty of fuel left yet. I thought I'd wait because... Uh, you be very careful what we put into our babies, you know. Back on the road, uh, knowing that we had to see something pretty soon, uh, finally we got to exit number 214. This is Marlin's Quick Stop, Tappan, North Dakota. And when we got there, it was kind of the same situation. Super old, sketchy pumps, and we thought, well, we still have some more time. Let's get back on the road again and get to something a little bit more uh, legitimate. And it wasn't an issue because I had 25 miles left on my little gauge miles to empty. As we headed out on the highway, the numbers started ticking down. Have you ever noticed that the bottom half of your tank disappears a lot faster than the top half of your tank? And so the numbers started to tick down. And uh, it started to get me worried because there was nothing. I mean, North Dakota, there's, nothing, there's a whole lot of nothing. We're traveling, there's just uh, nothing in front, nothing behind. And then finally, I saw an exit coming up. It was exit number 242. And relief uh, flooded through me, as you've probably felt before. When you're about out of gas, you finally see an exit. But we roll up to this exit, and underneath the exit sign is a sign like this uh, here you might have seen before. No services. So, heart sinks again. Uh, and my miles to empty is now at five miles. Nothing in sight. And so we continued driving and uh, wasn't too worried because three miles later, I saw another exit, exit 245. And it also had this same sign underneath the exit sign. What this means, no services, it means you can take the exit 
It means they probably have a building. They might have a bathroom. But you cannot get what you need. You won't get fuel there. You won't get food there. You won't get any help of what you really need. Now, back on the road, I am at zero. The miles to empty is at zero. The dummy light comes on. That's that light that says, hey, dummy, you're out of gas. We've been, you know, we've been warning you for the last 50 miles. You're getting low. Now you're out. That's why they call it a dummy light, because that's the people that run out of gas, dummies like me. Exit 248 is now in view. And as I drew near, you guessed it, the same sign stuck underneath the exit sign. No services. It was cloudy, so visibility was not too good. And it was about this time that way, way off in the distance, kind of through the haze, I saw the outline of a BP sign. You've seen those, the green, oh, I was, oh, if I can just squeeze enough out of these vapors left in my tank to make it to that BP station, what a blessing that will be. It was a water tower <laughs> when I got closer. Panic is now starting to set in because the zero mark has long been passed. And now exit 251, 251 comes up and goes because it has a no services sign underneath the exit sign. Somehow, I made it to exit 256. Didn't even slow down because underneath I could already see the very familiar sign that said no services. I'm now 15 miles past the zero point. It's still running, but so is my blood pressure, and nothing is in sight in front of us. That was a harrowing experience. But in the middle of that, while I'm going through this, I wrote a sermon in the notebook of my mind, and I want to share it with you today. Because all around us are people in desperate need of spiritual help. The vast majority of folks are in need of salvation. They need to be rescued from their sins and brought to Christ. Still others are in desperate need of spiritual healing. They have depleted their resources. They are running on empty. They know at their core that what they have is not enough to get them very far. And they may have tried all kinds of things. They may have tried alcohol. They might have tried drugs. They might have tried gambling or the party lifestyle. Maybe they tried relationships or financial success and promotions at work and, uh, and hobbies. But despite all, they find that there is still an emptiness there. And it's not filling them. They are running on a lack of satisfaction. And then perhaps someone invites them, or maybe it's a self-motivated thing, they decide that they're going to try going to church. Maybe they'll find what they need there at the church. Maybe they'll find what they're looking for. But I have sad news today, friends, that there are many churches today that offer no services. They're there. There's programs there. They're really busy. There's an exit sign and there's a building. But when you get there, there are no services. Uh, but... Uh, what people desperately need is not found there. There is no preaching against the sin that has so wrecked their life. Forgiveness is not talked about that much because to talk about the grace of God, you need to talk about the judgment of God. And we don't like talking about the judgment of God. 
Many churches, instead of offering an alternative to the worldly philosophies around us, instead embrace those worldly philosophies. They'll put a rainbow flag and slap it up on the side of their building, uh, inviting in the wicked lifestyles and embracing them. The very thing that causes misery and emptiness in so many lives is not addressed. In that way, they offer no services. I don't want to be a church that offers no services. As I was writing and going through this torture, I asked myself the question, are we, is our church, we now have a newly built exit. They built that exit for our church. Did you know that? Don't let them tell you any different. They built it for our church. So now we have our own exit. And when they get off that exit, will they find a church that offers services? I want to talk about just a cause, many things we could talk about, but I'm going to talk about two specific ones today about churches that offer no services. A church with no services does not preach against sin. How did sin come about? Here's man, God's highest creation. And of course, uh, we believe very strongly here what the Bible said, in the beginning God created. We believe that God created heaven's earth. I couldn't believe in evolution or anything like that. I don't have near enough faith to believe in something like that. And so I just choose to believe what God says. But here's man, God's highest creation. And can you imagine the way they lived was the Garden of Eden. It was a climactic paradise. There were no storms, no harmful natural occurrences. It was the perfect temperature, the perfect humidity, without pests or disease. There were no mosquitoes, praise God. No sin. And so because of there being no sin, there was no guilt. And Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. Imagine that. Do you know why they had a perfect marriage? They didn't have to deal with clothes shopping. That's why they had a perfect marriage. I'm just, I, I'm convinced that's true. Eve is the only woman in history of mankind that could open her claws and says, I have literally nothing to wear today and be telling the truth about it. Amen. They enjoyed the garden and all the blessings that came with it. They're to eat of the fruit of that garden. Every tree, but one in the middle. And God says, there's one tree. I don't want you to touch that tree. That tree is a tree of, uh, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, and you're not to touch it. If you eat it, you will die. There was no vagueness. There was nothing unclear about it. You eat, you die. So don't eat. That's what God told Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had it made. Everything was perfect. God filled every desire. They communed with God. They had a relationship with Him. They had, they spoke to their Creator and they lived in His garden. You know, something interesting I saw this last week, Brother Corey. God made the heavens and the earth. He made the sun, moon, and stars. You go through, you read that He made all those things. And then at the end, He made man, made woman from the rib of man. Uh, God's the only one that's ever been able to build a loudspeaker out of a rib. So he took a rib and he made uh, man and woman. And here's an interesting thing, though. He didn't make the garden. The Bible says he planted it. Isn't that interesting? Didn't really have a part to do with the message. I just saw that and thought, that's really interesting. Can you imagine living in a garden that God planted? That's what they did. Everything was perfect. Suddenly another appears. He's attractive. He looked good. He had done nothing for them, but he looked good and he sounded good. He was a slick talker. Now they had a choice to make. Will they choose to follow the one 
who has done everything for them, or will they choose to listen to the one who has done absolutely nothing for them? And of course, we know what they chose. They, the cho they chose to obey the one who had not done one blessed thing for them. He just looked good. Parents of teenagers kind of know what this feels like, doesn't it? Don't you? You invest years and years and years, and then they'll run off after somebody that just looks good. Hadn't done a thing for them. Well, we could preach about that for a while, but we're going to move on here. They chose to listen to the one that never gave them a, water, a drop of water to drink, never gave them air to breathe, never set the stars for them to see at night. They chose to believe the one who had done nothing for them, and they followed the, or they rejected the one who had done everything for them. This was the first sin committed by mankind. Now Adam and Eve faced serious consequences. They died spiritually, but they also began to die physically. And uh, the earth was cursed. Now there would be pain in childbirth, and there would be sickness and misery and death, and there would be mosquitoes that we still live with today. No matter how fun sin is, friend, it'll always take you farther than you want to go, It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is always out of your budget. Now, everyone since that time has been born in sin. Romans 5, 12, Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and so death, pass, uh, so death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You have wondered probably, or maybe you've been asked, why is there so much evil in the world? Why do so many bad things happen to good people? Why do kids get sick? Why do good people get cancer? This is why we live in a sin-cursed world. And it's all because of that, that evil things happen. Now, the devil does for us what he did for Eve. He decreases the blessings of God in our life, and he increases what we do not have. And he, uh, he, he increases what's off-limits. In fact, in the world today, they look at family values and, and, uh, that which are inspired by the Word of God. Not only is it de-emphasized, it's flat-out demonized in our society today. And look at the mess we're in. Wickedness is glorified. I'm glad that I've never gotten drunk. I'm glad that I've never tried drugs in my life. I'm glad that when I came to the marriage altar, I had never been with a woman before. I'm glad for that. And I'm not saying that that ruins you if you've ever uh, been caught up in those things, but the reason is because I have friends who did those things and found out that sin will scar and sin will destroy. They've bought the lies of Satan that it's, uh, it's all right to do your own thing and live your own life and don't worry about the consequences, but the sin is never like it looks on the menu. You ever look at a menu? and you see a big old juicy burger. You went in for a salad, but then you saw the picture of that burger. I mean, there's moisture glistening off the meat. The lettuce, that is, it's bouncy lettuce. It's not like normal. It's actually bouncy, and it has dew drops hanging on the lettuce, and the tomato is crisp, and it's thick. The pickles are just peeking out. Hello, we're here too. You see that picture, and oh man, I got to have that. Then you get it. And it looks like the fat cook in the back sat on it for like five minutes. Uh, the, you lift up the burger and it looks like the beef was raised in the Bush administration and the pickles, you only got half of one and it's like paper thin. 
Advertisements don't always match the product, do they? And the devil only operates off of advertisement. God doesn't win off of advertisement. God wins off of performance. He has never promised you anything that he has not done or will not do. Oh, I hate the devil and his tactics today so much. I hate him for the lives that I've seen him destroy as a father, uh, to see the lies my own children have bought into so, at times, to see the conflict that arises in our relationships. Sin is so devastating. As a youth pastor for 18 years, to see the investment of parents and teachers for years in the lives of their young people, and then to see those young people spit on all they have been taught. I've seen the rebellion that breaks parents' hearts and destroys the young people's future. I remember one specific young lady, she spent hours in our home. And I taught her in school, counseled her in my office. I was her youth pastor, and I took her to camp, took her to college trips. We invested time and energy, and yet she decided she would go her own way and do her own thing. At the age of 24, with a young husband and a young child, she put a gun to her head and took her own life. Sin is devastating. As a pastor, to have a front row seat to broken marriages and, and families torn apart, to be in, the, in a room in the midst of broken hearts as folks buy into the lies of the devil, as decisions are being made that I know are detrimental to the lives of those making them. I have to stand back and see it. Sin devastates as a man to experience the battle that I go through every day of my life. And you do too, sir and ma'am. We fight the flesh and the ever-present flesh always wants its way. The temptation to discouragement and anger and resentment and bitterness. The battle to keep my mind right and clean. Uh, the struggle to treat my wife and my children right with kindness and patience that all too often we fail at because we allow the flesh to get control. Can I tell you today, sin is devastating. And it will not stop till it destroys you. Then I picture a man or a woman and the gas tank of their life has been depleted. And then they see an exit. It's a church. Maybe I'll try the church. Maybe that's what I've been missing. How tragic if they go there and they find no services. How sad to go there and hear, hey, you come as you are. We'll accept you just as you are. We'll offer you no alternative to the life you're living. But that sin that you're bringing that has brought you so much misery, we'll accept it here. We'll just take you as you are. We will get behind you all the way. No services. A church that loves people will preach against sin. They'll offer an alternative to a sinful life, and they'll love people to God. A church with no services doesn't preach against sin. And a church with no services does not promote separation. Now, almost every doctrine found in the Bible is found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One doctrine that's introduced is the doctrine of separation. And sometimes we hear, if, uh, if you hear the word separation come out of a preacher's mouth like, oh no, here we are, we're going to get a long list of things we can't do. I know that's how I thought when I was younger. But I want to show you today that uh, this is a great doctrine. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 and 2, if you happen to be there. Verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, 
and thou shalt be a blessing. He tells him to separate. Now, this is the first time this concept is introduced in the Bible. And we see the positive side of separation in verse 1. He told him to get out of something and away from something unto something else. Not just going from something, but going to something. Now listen very carefully because a lot of times people confuse separation with legalism. And legalism, if you don't get both sides, the from and the unto, then you'll have legalism. But separation is all about the from and the unto. Legalism is doing anything for the purpose of obtaining salvation or the favor of God. Legalism in its truest definition is work salvation. Now, if you separate from the world and you just say, I don't do this, I don't wear that, I don't go there, I don't say this, then, then you are separating. But if you're not separating to anything, then you're missing the whole point of separation in the first place. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul said this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees were separated from everything. They didn't do anything. I mean, if it was fun or joyful, they didn't do it because they were a sour, unhappy, miserable bunch. Legalistic people usually are. And so they didn't separate to anything. Uh, separate, they separated from everything. But now Paul, when he got saved, he says, I'm still separated, but I'm not worried about what I'm separated from. I'm worried about what I'm separated to. I'm separated unto the gospel. Modern thought teaches us that if we walk in liberty, we don't have to keep the commandments. The Bible says that liberty is found in keeping the commandments. Psalm chapter 119 verse 45, And I will walk at liberty for or because I seek your precepts. See, Christian, there is a reason to be separated from the world. And it's not to accumulate a list of things you do not do or that you do do. Uh, the goal to separate from the world is so that you might separate to God. That's the whole purpose of separation. And you know, friend, and I know, that there's some things you can't be involved in in this world and still grow in your relationship with God. There's some things we have to separate from. John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The classic illustration of this is your wedding day. Do you take this woman or do you take this man that's, side note, different message, but I thought I'd say it. That's what it should be, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Amen? It was a man and a woman. I believe that. But do you take this woman or do you take this man? Now, when I did that on my wedding day, that was uh, next June, it'll be 30 years ago, when I stood at my uh, there and I uh, heard that question, what I was doing is separating from hundreds of broken-hearted girls, maybe thousands, I don't know, Separating from all these broken-hearted girls to one. That's what I was separating to. Yeah, but can you go along with me on this uh, thought that marriage is separation? It's separation from all others to that one. Do you promise to forsake all others is the vow. Keep yourself only unto her as long as you both shall live. What if the groom said, hold on a minute here, preacher. You're being just a little bit narrow-minded, aren't you? 
You're asking me to be only with one woman for the rest of my life? That's very narrow-minded. That's very legalistic. I mean, I like her and all, but that's a little old-fashioned to think that way. Of course the groom's not doing that. Why? Because he's not thinking about what he's separating from. He's thinking about what he's separating to. And if you put your focus on all the things, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, and that's just not fair, then you're, you're missing the whole point of separation. We're to separate to the Lord. That's what the whole idea of separation is. That's what the idea of, of Moses being, or uh, I'm sorry, Abram being told to leave his homeland so he could go closer to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the word separate keeps coming up holy. To live a separated life is to live a holy life. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Separation is not always explained. In fact, it wasn't explained to Abram. He just said, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred from thy father's house, and to a land I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. There's something missing here. Why? Why do I have to leave everything I know and love? Abram, move away from your life. Separate from your family, your friends. Why, God? No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you why. You're going to, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless you, but I'm not going to tell you why. Sometimes we, we just need to obey. Take the dietary laws. Do you think the Israelites understood every aspect of the dietary laws? I remember when I was a, about 17 years old, I read a book called None of These Diseases. You should read it if you haven't. It's a great, great read. And it, was, uh, it broke down all the dietary laws God gave Israel and the diseases that would have avoided. And uh, do you think they understood all that? Hey, man, I love bacon. We can't have bacon? That's the best way I like to eat my shrimp with bacon wrapped around it. Wait, I can't have shrimp? That's the laws they had to take. Did they understand that uh, the nutrition involved and the diseases could be avoided? Probably not. God didn't tell them. Don't mix meat and milk together. Did they know about their laws of digestion? I mean, science has figured that out, uh, you know, millennia since then. But no, God just told them to do it. There, sometimes he, uh, he doesn't tell us why we need to separate, just tells us we need to separate. And so we just obey. There's reasons we don't do the things, uh, some things, uh, in this world. I heard about one woman who came home to find her husband. He was in the kitchen shaking frantically. Uh, almost in a dancing frenzy. There was some kind of wire that was running from his waist and uh, intending to jolt him away from this deadly current. She found a two-by-four that was leaning against the kitchen and she whacked him on the side of the arm with it, breaking his arm in the process. Up to that moment, he had been happily listening to music through his earbuds. <laughs> it's another reason Baptists don't dance, amen? Could get whacked by a two-by-four. There's a practical side of separation. People sometimes don't understand this idea that this should be a practical doctrine in our lives. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, peculiar doesn't mean weird or odd. It means special. It means set apart. It means valued. You should be different. You're not in darkness anymore. But how can we be a light to those that are still in darkness if we have no difference in our life, if we just live like they live? That, that's going to be salt that loses its savor. So because of who we are in Christ, we ought to be different. We ought to be grateful. We should be helpful. We should be kind. 
We should be generous. We should have grace to those that don't deserve it. We should love our enemies. We should be kind to those who despicably use us. We should do all those things because we're followers of Christ. We're not part of the world anymore. We are peculiar people. There should be a separation. Uh, in our appearance, we ought to be modest in our appearance. Ladies, all fashion should point uh, should direct the eyes to the face, not other parts of the body. It does not promote your beauty to show more skin. Amen. Now, the Bible, I think it's interesting, in the book of Esther, we just went through Esther last year, and in the book of Esther, of all the women in the kingdom, the king chose a godly woman. I found that interesting. He wasn't godly. He was an animal. Uh, he was basically parading them like, like pieces of meat in front of him. But yet he chose a godly woman. And it's interesting because if you read Esther, you'll see that uh, the women in waiting, uh, all, all of the people along with her were offered everything that Mary Kay had to offer. They could use all the uh, products they wanted, but Esther specifically required none of it because she knew that real beauty is from the inside out and beauty comes from within. And all those women of Persia, Esther was the one chosen. It's interesting to me. Our appearance should reflect a pure heart. And as a Christian, we ought to reflect the joy of Christ. We ought to be separated from the misery of this world. How about smiling once in a while, amen? A smile, that curve that sets everything straight. And it's free, and it improves your looks. We spend so much time trying to improve our looks when, as a real simple way to do it, just smile once in a while, amen? It's a great thing. Show the joy of God. I'm just saying as a Christian, we ought to live like one. And then our activities. Our activities ought to honor God. I'll give you an illustration. I was raised Amish, most of you know, and the Amish are separated from everything and everybody. They don't do, they don't take part in anything that the rest of the world does. They look different. There's no contact with the world. And by the way, this is where they messed up. Their separation is not practical. It doesn't do anything to help anyone. It doesn't, it doesn't rescue anyone from their sin. Isolation is not the same as separation. Separation ought to have an impact. The purpose of separation is not to exclude, it is to include. The whole point is to show that there's something different about us. We have something better than what the world has to offer. And those that are dying for commitment, uh, contentment and fulfillment, folks that are out there miserable, who every night of the week are trying to drown their sorrows at the neighborhood bar. I'm talking about people who get off the route one thir uh, exit 130 out here, and I don't want them to find a place with no services. We need to be a help and an answer to folks who have those needs. There's a personal side of separation. How does this look in real life? I turn now to James chapter 1, if you would. While you do that, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I read that, I think it's interesting, that, uh, first of all, what's a weight? A weight is not a sin, a weight is something that might lead to a sin, that's connected to a sin. And it seems strange to me that God will list the weight first and then the sin. It seems to me like a person first gets saved, a brand new Christian, first gets rid of the sin in their life, and as they mature in Christ, they'll start putting away the weights. But God lists the weight first. I think that's interesting. A paraphrase would be, lay aside the weight and the sin that is so closely associated with the weight. Because if you lay aside the weight, 
you'll most of the time prevent the sin in your life. I'll give you some examples. It was not a sin for David to take the day off. It led to a sin, though, with Bathsheba. It was not a sin for Achan to stop fighting and to look at the worldly goods, the gold and the Babylonian garments and things in the middle of the battle. That was not a sin, but it sure led to sin. It was not a sin for Lot to choose the well-watered plains, but it led to sin. And what the Bible's telling us here, there's times that it is the weight that precedes the sin. And so often in our lives, we don't only focus on the sin, we focus on the weights, lay aside the weight so, and the sin that so easily besets us. Now, in James chapter 1, verse 14, if you've got that, let's read. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There are six steps in this verse that I would like to demonstrate for you. He says, but every man is tempted. Tempted would be the first step. And then he is drawn away of his own lust. Enticed. Oh, we'll go over here. Lust. And then it brings forth sin, ultimately brings forth death. Here's these six steps. It's really a progression in this verse. Now, they're not all sin. Let's just review. Tempted? Tempted is not a sin. To be tempted is not sinful. Jesus was tempted. He was not, he was not sinful. To be drawn. This is the, by the way, this is the inward. There's two different types of temptation. They're both uh, here. Drawn is the inward temptation. Enticed is the outward temptation. Drawn is what your flesh makes you want to do. Enticed is what others make you want to do. So it's not a sin to be drawn. Okay? Not yet. It's not a sin to be enticed. Uh, I've been enticed. By the way, Jesus was enticed to do something he's easier than done by the devil. He did not sin. And then even here, lust is not a sin in the way that the Bible presents it. In the Bible, lust is simply a desire. A, uh, a, we, I know we have sexualized that word, and it is true that it can be. Lust can be impure thoughts and all those things, but lust in this context is simply desires, are the fleshly lust, the things that we want. And that's not necessarily in and of itself a sin. But then you come to the sin, and then you come finally to death. Romans 6.23, because of our sin, for the wages of sin is death. So the consequence of sin is death. All of us will die because we've all sinned. Now, here's where separation rules and restrictions come in. Because if you don't want to sin, if you don't want to sin, then stay away from lust. If you don't want to lust, stay away from places where you're enticed. If you don't want to be enticed, start training your flesh not to be drawn to the wrong things. Be a part of church. You go to church more than you go to the bar. You know what I'm saying? Just common sense type stuff. This is where separation comes in. So this is what sets us apart from liberal churches who take no stand against anything. This is what sets you parents apart from those parents that let their kids do, listen, watch anything they want to listen and watch uh, or do. See, many times the standards that some churches and some homes set are designed to keep kids out of this chair right here. Sin. We don't want them to sin. But my goal through standards and separation is not to keep kids out of that chair, but to keep them out of this chair. And by the way, that's my goal for me too. 
Because if I can keep myself from being tempted in the first place, then I'm going to have a lot easier uh, avoidance of this chair than if I allow myself to be tempted, if I get around people who draw me into those things or entice me into those things, if I dwell on it and I'm drawn in my own flesh, it's much easier to work our way down to the sin chair and eventually the death chair. In other words, your non-denominational community worship center of your town, USA, they have rules against number five, sin. But standards and convictions that we put that are a little higher than that will keep you not only from sin, but it'll help keep you from being tempted in the first place. Amen? Does this make sense? I think it's a great, uh, I think it's a very practical doctrine, separation is. In my home, and I hope in yours too, we have standards to protect against the first chair there. And this is how separation can make an impact. Uh, this, that's why we say no to the world's music. That's why we say no to physical relations before marriage. That's why we say yes to doing things right and proper and the way the Bible says because we know that one leads to two, leads to three, four, five, and eventually death. We want to avoid sin, but quit just setting up your life to only avoid this chair. Start to set some higher stand in your life to start avoiding these chairs right here. These are weights. See, this is the sin. This is the weights. And so in Hebrews it says, hey, first, get rid of the weights. And guess what will happen when you start getting rid of the weights? The sin's kind of gone. You see what I'm saying? When you get rid of those things that we, we can use a, a, a modern word, triggers, that trigger us into doing the wrong things and thinking the wrong things. From the beginning that God created us, He's protected us, and He's done it with standards and restrictions. In the garden, it was one restriction. Don't eat of that tree. You know what that protected them from? Death! Death! They died because they ate of that tree. And God was protecting them by His rules. Years ago, I had a, in Michigan, I had a German shepherd, best dog I've ever had. I love this German shepherd. His name was Max. And I took him for walks once in a while. And my neighbor, about six houses down, had a little uh, dog. It's one of those little yapper dogs. It's actually a cat. Puts on an outfit, calls itself a dog. And yep, 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 yep. And they had a fence. And this little ankle biter would just desperately try to get out to get, to get a go at Max because he could have whipped him up. One day he got out. And uh, he goes crazy attacking Max, just kind of looks at him, you know. That's really cute what you're trying to do down there. But you understand, the fence wasn't there to restrict that dog. It was to protect that dog. And that's the thing that God does with us with standards and convictions and these rules He puts in the Bible. It's not there to make sure we have no fun in life. It's there to protect us often from ourselves. Keep us out of these chairs right here. By the way, we do this because of love. Why do we offer these services? Why do we preach against sin? Why do we offer alternatives to people who are, who are caught up in, in, uh, in, in the dregs of sin and we preach at them, we love at them, and we try to get them out of that situation because we love them? It is not love to allow a person to continue in his sin. Don't you let that for a minute, let churches uh, that are more liberal than ours say they have more love than we do. When a preacher gets up behind this pulpit, rolls up his sleeves and preaches against sin like Brother Moore did a few weeks ago and he started naming sins when he does that that is love even when he steps on our toes even when he uh, brings out areas that we need to change that's love you take a mealy mouth spineless preacher to stand here and tell you what you want to hear that's not love that's what he talks about in second peter uh, timothy 4 3 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine 
But they'll, uh, after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Listen, the only way we can draw closer to God in our life, the only way we can move away from chair number five is, uh, and, and, and all the way over here to the other end is to listen to the standards that are set forth in the Word of God for our life. And for young people, the standards that are set forth in your home, they're not there to make you miserable. They're there to protect you. And that's what we ought to listen to. When, what did Jesus say in John 15, 10? If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Young person, if I can talk to teenagers just for a second in here, don't ever let yourself think that your parents love you less because they don't let you do anything. That means they love you more. It's love that restricts you from doing... Uh, it's love that keeps you from going to houses you shouldn't go to. It's love that doesn't let you go to that party. It's love that doesn't let you uh, go to an area that you might be enticed to do something you shouldn't do. It's love that keeps you from going somewhere where you're going to be drawn by your own flesh to do what you shouldn't do. I'll tell you what love is. It's a mom, it's a dad, or even a pastor that has the backbone to look you in the eye and say, no, no, you can't wear that. No, you can't watch that. No, you can't do that. Hey, Junior, you may not understand this now, but trust me, you will one day. It is not to only keep you from sin. We're trying to keep you out of chair number one and keep you from going down that slide into sin and eventually into death. There's lots of things that there's nothing specifically wrong with. Is there anything in and of itself wrong with staying out past curfew? Not really. Maybe some people's curfew are... My, when my daughters started uh, getting to the teenage years, I mean, I thought it was reasonable. My curfew was 5 p.m. They need to be back by 5 p.m., okay? Before dark, that's when I'd like them back. Is there anything wrong with staying out past curfew? Not in and of itself, but do you think it could lead to being tempted? Could it lead to being drawn? Could it lead to being enticed? We have standards to protect us not only from sin, but from being there in the first place. Don't resent them. If you think that allowing your kids to do anything they want to do, that they'll turn out right, somebody stop payment on your reality check. Because that's not going to happen. Give a pig and a boy everything they want, you'll have a good pig and a bad boy. We need to set some standards. Quit uh, resenting those standards. I know that I'm going over, but I, I, one other thing I wanted to point out to you, the sumo wrestler principle, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, it's so good. So, something I wanted to do in my life is be a sumo wrestler, and I never had the body for it, but uh, I understand that they have uh, the rules for sumo wrestling is essentially pushing each other off the mat is how you get, point, is how you get points. And so that's why you see them, boom, 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 you know, they crash together, and uh, they're trying to push each other off the mat. So if I, as a sumo wrestler, if I would stand right on the edge of the mat, that would make me kind of silly, wouldn't it? Where's the safest place to be? In the middle. As far away from the edge as you can go. And in our lives as Christians, sometimes we want to live all the way to the edge. As close to the edge as we can. And we wonder why we get pushed off. Because we're falling to this chair. Because we're spending time in these chairs here. Standards will help you there. A church with no services does not demonstrate real love. Real love does not leave people in their sin. Real love does not leave you empty. Real love offers something better. I can't tell you how relieved I was when I rolled up to exit 258 and up to a shell station located just off the exit. I have a picture I want to show you I took 
uh, I have a six-gallon tank on my motorcycle. I put in 6.02 gallons in that tank. Folks, I was empty. I needed services. I needed services bad. But I kept running into places that didn't offer any. That didn't help me at all. Sent me on down the road, still empty. Still rejected. Still in desperate need. I want people when they walk into these doors, they find services. They find help for what they need. I hope that you have the same heart that I do because spiritually there's folks all around us they are empty and they need a place with services. Let's offer it to them. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm grateful to be in a church that I believe offers services. And here, the invitation simple today. Are you in here today, friend, and you need these services? Do you need somebody to take a Bible and show you how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven? We offer that service here at Bible Baptist. Somebody, if you'll come forward while she begins to play in a minute, someone will take a Bible, take you to a side room and show you how you can know that you know that you know you're on your way to heaven. Maybe you're in here today, Christian, and you just need some help. You need help from God. You need to just get down on your knees before God today and say, Lord, I need your help. I'm running on empty. And I need services. Would you stand along with me? And as she begins to play, if God spoke to your heart, would you respond?